right. Welcome back once again to the ABC of Michigan podcast. That's not going to be the name anymore. It's going to be Merit Shop Pod. The Merit Shop Pod. If you're familiar with ABC at all, you know our hashtag is ABC Merit Shop Proud. So a little play on words there. We like to have fun and fight for freedom here at the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan. My name is Jeff Wiggins, State Director, host of the podcast. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, joining us in studio today, a brand new studio we're working out of uh, in, in, a, in a hidden bunker deep in the heart of Lansing. Beautiful. <laughs> downtown Lansing. Uh, joining us today is the president and CEO of Harbor Strategic, a person of perpetual political punditry, Mr. John Selleck. John, very, thanks for joining us. Very well done. Well, alliteration is key, John. It's always a it's always a fun tool to use, but uh, a lot, lot happening. A lot happened yesterday. Yes. We'll start off. Uh, we're going to touch on some ABC issues a little later, stuff that affects our members, uh, free enterprise, and uh, building our infrastructure in this country and, and, and maybe a little bit of uh, some policies that might be coming down the pipe that could affect everyone's pocketbooks, including those in the uh, merit shop contracting industry. But first off, Super Tuesday yesterday. No longer Sleepy Joe. Super Joe? He is Super Joe. That's I mean, good. He, he came out, uh, he came out the, the big winner yesterday and took several states, um, especially a couple that, Kind of took people by surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota, I believe he won. Uh, came out in front in Texas, but as we were discussing before, that a win in Texas is uh, not necessarily a big win because he only came ahead by a few delegates there. That's right. Um, but I think the biggest surprise was um, a half a billion dollars wins you the gem of the Democratic primary, that being American Samoa. Mike Bloomberg <laughs> is, 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 is riding that momentum now. <laughs> and uh, and and I guess what we saw also was Elizabeth Warren failed to win a state, not, didn't even win her own state. What do you take from yesterday? What's the big takeaway? All right, mostly that pundits don't know what they're talking about, right? And that you should wait. I like the my favorite line lately is that there's, you know, a hundred or a million political eyes left until we get to the election, and yesterday proved that again. Political eyes are lasting day, two days, three days. Right. I mean, the people who came out ahead in the primary, as far as Bloomberg winner, all the people that got. Free pizzas and free lunch and uh, lots of jobs. I heard lots of contracts signed through November to get people on board, um, grassroots volunteer types and all that stuff. I mean, it, the amount of spending that race is so unfathomable as far as po politics goes. That, like My children spend all their time watching other people play Fortnite on YouTube, and they know all about Mike Bloomberg. They're actually <laughs> complaining, like, why am I seeing these ads about Mike Bloomberg? And that means that when, you, when advertisers go to buy time, Usually you're cash strapped in a campaign and you're very careful where you're targeting your ads. These guys are basically like, I'll take any inventory anywhere that's open. That's how much money was flooding into the market. And so at first, early on, people thought, oh, this is making an effect. Look at his numbers go up. But then uh, kind of like on the Wizard of Oz, you come out from behind the curtain, you get on the debate stage and things don't go so hot. And his campaign digitally and on television was so good, he actually couldn't live up to it, I think is the biggest problem for him. Right, because you saw, I mean, when he was in those debates, he was just, he was getting pummeled by everybody. And he just, uh, it, it, I saw I saw a question he received at a town hall uh, over firearms. And uh, agree or disagree on his stance on firearms, it was just, pro it was probably the worst answer he could have given. Um, somebody asked him if, uh, w why he gets to have uh, arm protection. And Bloomberg essentially said, 
Well, you know, I get a lot of threats on my life. That's what happens when you're when you're popular or wealthy or the mayor, and, and it's just it just came off so poorly. And uh, I think you're right. I think just stay on social media, maybe avoid the debates. But not, not sure his office is the merit shop. It's what Mike says go shop. So nobody had ever challenged him in the last thirty years. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then well, he faced a big challenge. I think it's also um very interesting today to see it as like the America loves a comeback story. The media loves a comeback story, especially probably when they're kind of rooting because they think they're saving the republic by having Sanders not win. Um, right. They're giving a lot of free play to Biden coming back. The scary part for Biden is that you read even this morning that in states that he won, like Virginia, and he did very well in the South, more conservative, more African-Americans, he had one office there and barely any ads on TV. So this comeback victory is the res- you know resonating from South Carolina, but it's a lot of voters seeing – Judge get out, see Amy get out, say, we're sending the signal. We need to get behind one guy, and we're saying that Biden is the guy to do it with. So he's benefiting from that more than anything. Um, and that seems to mean that he'll be a little creaky or fragile going forward. Not that he can't win, but that when he's in the general election, they have a long way to go to catch up on structure. Right. Right. Well, and, and that's it raises two questions I wanted to pit to you. One, what does Elizabeth Warren do from here? I mean, she she wanted to have a strong showing. It didn't mean she had to win a lot of states yesterday. But what you saw was people saying, we need to beat Bernie, so we're voting for Joe. Even though we may, like Senator Warren, we think like her idea is better, them being Democratic primary voters. Right. Um, but they just, it, they, it, was, it, it was this concerted effort that Republicans didn't do in 16 who had opposition to Trump. And it was more of a... We need to unite behind somebody now, right after South Carolina, and I think we saw that in the return. So where does we're, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, um, and and there's several, uh, I believe there's six uh, primaries or caucuses next Tuesday. Michigan being one of them. Does she stay in or get out before then? Well, these days, what it comes down to is, can you still have money in the bank account to keep rolling forward? And they drew a lot of attention early because they said they were going to swear off PACs and super PACs. And they worked really hard to develop their own donor network going forward. And that's the bottom line for most campaigns. The reason they used to all drop out after Iowa was because they ran out of money. They put everything on the table to try to move forward. Um, and then they had nothing left and they couldn't do it. They weren't going to get a rush of cash after they won that. Um, she clearly still has some money in the bank. My conspiratorial mind seriously starts to wonder. And the only person that she's really hurting Sanders. Right. She's holding him back. And I'm surprised she hasn't started to take on the attacks by the Bernie bros saying that she is secretly trying to weigh him down a little bit and hold him back. Um, but most people who run for president, that doesn't mean they're bad people. They have massive egos and this is a lifelong dream. And you know, once you turn the lights off, it's over. And so it's hard for some people to let go. Yeah. But she doesn't have a mathematical path to victory unless everybody gets in a bus crash. So right. I think. Right. <laughs> Um, so on that, on that same note, um, what's, what's the, is it Bernie versus Joe from here on out? Is it basically, um, a march to the convention to see who can see if somebody can get a majority of delegates or, or is Bloomberg going to stay in this the whole time? I mean, he's already invested half a billion dollars. We saw uh, Chad Livingood had a piece in, in Cranes that says he has $12 million in media buys across Michigan, which is more than all the Republican and Democratic candidates from 2016 combined. Um, 
you don't spend that kind of money and just kind of bow out gracefully after it doesn't go so well. Um, what's the future look like on this? Well, most successful business people know when to cut off an investment and move on. Most business people of any kind don't have the kind of resources that he has. So he's operating on a different planet than everyone else would. Mm-hmm. So you might say, I spent $500 million and I only won American Samoa. I should probably get out of this thing and save my money. But he's 77 and sitting on $100 billion. He can burn more money as a vanity project. He may also think, I'm not really clear how this is going to turn out because we don't know. Right now, it seems to sort of be neck and neck between Bernie and Joe. It seems to be they are the two lanes and where does he fit? But if they get to a convention and somebody doesn't have 1,900 delegates, Bloomberg may believe I'll hang on until then to see if I have a play there, if I could be a a compromise candidate going forward. Um, They did let out a few whispers last night that they might reconsider what's going on, but um, he's certainly not hurting for money. Um, Some other interesting things, I think, to look at going forward are in the Biden comeback, you look at states and demographic groups that drove him to victory, African-Americans big time. There's a lot of African-American votes in those southern states. Michigan has a lot of African-American votes. They didn't come out for Hillary Clinton in 2016, but I think they're going to come out for Joe Biden this year. So that's really going to help him. Also, because he has no structure and organization, he struggles in caucus states like he did terribly in Nevada. Um, There basically are no more caucus states left. There's a couple small ones going forward. So Bernie's advantage on that front is going to start to evaporate, too. I even think some of the caucus, I read some of the caucuses he won in 2016 are now no longer caucus states, they're primary states, which is, like you said, where he excels. And if uh, if those are gone, that infrastructure is essentially useless when you're going up a name who has coalition backing like like Joe Biden If we move to states that have, you know, he's succeeding with Latinos. If we move to states that are more African-American based. And don't have caucuses. These are things that are going against Bernie going forward. Um, Minnesota, we mentioned, I think, earlier as a surprise upset for Biden. That was a caucus state in 2016. They flipped into a primary state, expanded their electorate, and Joe won. Right. So So, it made a difference. So looking forward, let's one more thing on this this topic. We got, like we mentioned earlier, we got the Michigan uh, primary next Tuesday. Right now, Joe Biden is leading in the polls in Michigan. It's likely due to exactly the type of thing you just described and what we've seen, a more of a coalescing around him is the anti-Bernie, the we don't want a socialist as the candidate for our party um, just because it won't help win elections. Do we see Biden win on Tuesday? And to take it a step further, does, a, does Biden at the top of the ticket, how does that affect down-ballot races in Michigan when we get into the general compared to if Bernie Sanders is the candidate? Right. Um, Well, one thing that made it easier for us deciding what will happen on Tuesday is the Detroit News put out a poll early this morning from Richard Shuba, who's done a lot of polling in Michigan, um, and he has uh, Biden pulling ahead uh, by several points um, over Sanders, and that that comes before the Super Tuesday results. One thing that counts, we talk about demographic groups, we talk about fundraising. A large amount of people in the, the exit polling said that they made up their, their minds in the last couple of days, that they weren't really sure who to go with in these states. And they went overwhelmingly for Biden. They decided not to go for the revolution. Um, coming to Michigan now, they'll have watched what happened. Undecided voters in Michigan will have watched what happened from South Carolina to Super Tuesday. You, there's a lot of people that just want to pick the winner in the end. They can't make up their minds. So I'm going to be on the winning team. Right. I guess I'm going to switch to Joe. I'll stop flirting around and not be able to make up my mind. Um, obviously, in the 
down ballot races going into the future, there's a lot of concern. I think it's pretty obvious just by reading through Twitter, a lot of longtime Democrat establishment type, no offense, um, establishment type, I suppose, um, consultants are sounding the alarm bells about a Bernie Sanders being at the top of the ticket and how every one of those candidates is going to start to get marked that way. Um, one group in Michigan called Michigan Rising Action already has um, adjusted its focus to look at state house races as an example. And they found information that said a state rep was for Medicaid for all. And then they found her out knocking doors and asked her the same question and got a different answer. And the point of that is that those nationalized issues are now going to come all the way down right. into these local races um, in the fight for the Michigan House, which will make a big deal about what kind of last two t- years of Governor Whitmer's first term she'll have. Right. Well, um, still a lot to be seen. This is, uh, it, it appears to be far from over. Um, still a lot of, uh, a lot more of the circus left to uh, partake in. So uh, moving on to another issue that you are in fact familiar with and one that uh, ABC is, is a big proponent of is this uh, move at the federal level by the Trump administration to kind of reform the way infrastructure projects are being evaluated from an environmental standpoint. Um, the National Environmental uh, Policy Act, NEPA, as it's referred to, uh, created uh, by Richard Nixon, put into, put into effect by Richard Nixon. You know, the rules were established. Over decades, it's just become a bureaucratic nightmare. And you are actually working with a group that is looking to reform that. And ABC is, is a member of that coalition. That the national organization was actually at the White House in January when this uh, new uh, proposal was, was announced. Yeah, well, when you look at the the breadth of the coalition, um, it's very impressive. And it, it has to, you know, from the outside, you might boil it down to, is it the environmentalists and activists versus um, the the business community? And it's just more complex than that. It really comes down to, I think, um, the balance that government has to strike when they're serving taxpayers overall. The National Coalition, and then that lends itself down here into Michigan, um, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, so all the business side, National Manufacturing Association, all those folks. Then it moves into agriculture, National Farm Bureau. They all see issues with this. It moves into forestry. Um, and, and so it covers a lot of ground. Um, the more obvious examples that fit these days is to talk about uh, infrastructure and transportation. That's the main thing that we talk about on the ground here. In Michigan, we've seen an example in Michigan of a new road that was delayed uh, at least 10 years for a review. I think at the beginning... And the coalition would say this, too. Is NEPA a good thing to have in place? Yes. If it's modernized, then it fits the speed at which we need to do things. Um, As an example, you said it was back from President Nixon. 1968 was when he was elected. Um, That's older than me. Luckily, I can say that. (laughs) But I've spent the last few days with my kids at basketball tryouts, and they've been at a middle school in, um, in town. And we noticed on the way in last night it was built in 1968. Well, unfortunately, it's a whole different topic. It's a wreck. It's a wreck of a building. Right. It's terrible. And because it, it, ha- it looks like it hasn't been touched since the day it was built. So it's probably awesome. Up front, just like NEPA, it was probably a good idea. Let's make sure we're just double-checking the environment before we move forward with the project. But over those 50 years, nothing's been done. The world has changed. The world should be moving a lot faster. And what happens is people learn how to kind of game the system. And so if you oppose these projects, right. you figured out how to put up the roadblocks and the landmines and the lawsuits. Well, and the thing that gets lost in seating the, the, the Congress seating this uh, this power to the bureaucracy, this rulemaking process, these regulations, and, and their enforcement of them, is that they become political tools, mm-hmm. essentially. 
um, as as the uh, as the act has evolved, have the, as the regulations have evolved, you've seen administration after administration either either use it use it as as much as they could, or maybe not use it as much as they could, depending on the ideological preferences of uh, mm-hmm. the folks that are that are behind them. But I mean, what we're seeing is, and it's you know, we you and I have talked about it before the uh, the project out near Grand Haven mm-hmm. that from from conception to completion took over a decade, almost 15 years, just from the, the thought of doing it, the idea of doing it, and then having to go through this almost decade-long approval process simply because of environmental impacts. And, and I think everybody can agree, yes, we have to take care of our water. We don't want to deplete our forests. We want to make sure we're not doing anything that's going to harm the environment uh, simply by putting uh, a project in place, whether it's a road, a bridge, and a large agricultural operation, we want to make sure we do it right. But at the same time, what you started to see was now how many cars are driving over that road or over that bridge, and what is what are, what is the emissions impact on climate change? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's it you can tell it has gone just way beyond the original intention of the act to where it's just simply hindering businesses and stifling investment well if we tried to make a list of the government programs that were instituted that got smaller over time or got more careful uh, it would probably be a pretty short list and so nepa is no different than that it's just grown and gotten bigger and deeper and more burdensome and out of control and there's no one there really to check it until this administration got in place and they're they're taking heat for doing it and that's probably why previous administrations didn't take it on and try to tighten it up right now if for example that project in grand haven it's certainly been controversial. Um, there's folks that are worried about sprawl and uh, overexpansion of our roads. There are people worried about putting a new road near a sensitive wetland or building a bridge there. But the bottom line is the area was growing and traffic was growing and traffic didn't stop growing over the 10 years that we're waiting for a environmental impact report to be done. They're not trying to eliminate the report. They're trying to shorten it up, like get it done. Let's move faster. Um, the administration's looking to put a two-year cap Right. And how long the government can take to do a report. The one in Grand Haven took a decade. Um, so a road that first kind of came into someone's mind in, in the 1990s wasn't completed until 2015. So Governor Snyder got to get the credit for opening the new road. Right. That, was, that, was, even, that was a concept when Governor Engler was in office. <laughs> Go figure. Right. And there's a lot of other examples. Um, you know, in Denver, I-70, if you've gone from Denver across the Rocky Mountains out to Utah, that's the main highway there. They, they went through 15 or 16 years of debate and argument over just over the study. And now they finally started construction. But, you know, if you're waiting in traffic today or if an ambulance is trying to get to you in traffic today or the trucks that carry the goods that you buy at Target or Moyer are waiting in traffic and getting more expensive as they're sitting there, you're paying no matter what. You're paying the price for those delays. And so it's just common sense to say we need to move faster. We need to keep America's edge uh, over the rest of the world, we need to get things done. You wonder, uh, on one radio interview I heard, if uh, President Eisenhower had NEPA to deal with when he was building the, the uh, interstate highway system, oh, would it even be built yet? How long would the Mackinac Bridge have taken? How many years of delay would there have been before it was even allowed to start being built? Right. And it's unthinkable that we wouldn't have it. I remember my dad telling me, my uh, grandparents were from the UP, they would wait in line in their car in the summer for three hours to get their car on the car ferry to cross the Straits of Mackinac. And if somebody decided to build a new bridge like that today, I have a feeling NEPA and the folks that know how to operate the NEPA roadblocks, they'd delay it for 10, 15, 20 years 
we'd probably be dead and gone by the time they even started building the thing. So that's the goal here is to speed things up. Yeah. So uh, just to wrap this topic up, we're looking at, uh, I think I saw the public comment uh, period is ending within the next few days. Um, and then, and then I, from what I understand that the Trump administration hopes to have a new rule, these reforms in effect by the end of the year. Yep, they, um, they've done two um, public hearings, one in Washington, D.C., and one in out in Colorado, in part because of the controversy right. over I-70. Um, you can go to regulations.gov and enter your comments in. March 10th is the last day. And then after a certain period of time after that, once they've settled on the rule and, and considered all the input, um, Congress does have a window to weigh in on it. Um, but I think they're hopeful that, at least because of the split between the House and Senate, that it'll go into effect. All right. Well, moving on to the thing that kind of made some news last week. It was brought to everybody's attention on uh, Take Out the Trash Day on Friday, <laughs> right about 4 o'clock uh, in the afternoon. It was announced that there was a new, uh, I guess, not necessarily uh, maybe a coalition even, uh, that is putting forward a constitutional amendment that would ingrain in our Constitution a graduated income tax. Right now, our current constitution says we're not allowed to have a graduated income tax. That's right. This would completely reverse that and do a whole bunch of other things. And and John, I know you know from experience the best way to enact tax policy is to put it in a constitution, not not through state statute. Of course, of course, I'm being sarcastic, folks. <laughs> um, so we got this uh, the the model or the. Um, uh, sample petition, the language that you will see if you are approached on the street by these folks looking to, um, you know, impose this graduated income tax for the folks at home. We are videotaping this. I'm showing it to our uh, our viewers as well. But so it's, it's you know, a few short lines on a, on a petition page, but then you see the actual uh, changes that need to be made. And uh, if you look at the Constitution, it's going to be five pages attached to this uh, attached to this uh, form that you got to fill out this pet, uh, petition file. Um, but John, has this idea of a graduated income tax, is this, this isn't a new idea, obviously the, the, the folks left of center have always proposed this in Michigan, but how does this, how does this, I guess, affect how people will, whether, whether it be, would be voting in November or, or what would be the common public perception of well, the way I always look at it from the time I spent as a staffer at the House of Representatives, and you look at the current House of Representatives and Senate, would you see the, the complaint that you hear all the time is there is a so-called permanent Republican majority in the House and Senate, and they just won't take up things like this that are the, quote, right thing to do. So they blame the Republicans, but the thing that you don't see are Democrats who are running on re-election, on a re-election platform of instituting a graduated income tax. Across the board, they are not out doing that. If you went and met with them, especially in swing districts, and said, should this be your lead issue, they won't touch it. Um, and that's that's more indicative of why they're going this route, because they know those legislators, they won't do it. More incredibly to me, as I start to look at it, you know, the, the real question always is, you know, who's behind these initiatives? Who's going to fund it? I mean, they started a little bit late. As far as the window for collecting signatures, they only have four months. Right, right. I think it's uh, I think it's July. They need to have everything in because it's a constitutional amendment, not a citizen initiated legislation. So it doesn't need to go to the legislature. It'll go 
directly to the ballot if they're able uh, to get the signatures. Right. And, you know, with the full allotment of time, doing it on a fully volunteer basis is hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, doing it two months missing off that window right. uh, is going to be even harder. And some of the spokespeople for it have said, oh, well, you know, we've seen how other ballot initiatives like Voters Not Politicians managed to pull this off before. Well, those guys also pull in a ton of money um, from outside the state of Michigan, the dark money that you don't know where it came from. So you wonder, do they already know that they have a bunch of dark money coming in to fund this? Right. Well, and, and I think they had a little easier message uh, on redistricting and, and how lines are drawn. And it's easy to show oddly shaped districts and you can get the public behind that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and venture that this pro- arguing that banning tax cuts essentially for five years, which is what this would do. It says you are not allowed to reduce the state's income from 2021 uh, to 2025. Banning tax cuts uh, isn't really something that you want to run on, even even if you're left of center uh, in this type of political environment. Well, what the whole thing is fairly shocking to me. And after you read it and digest what they're doing, they know that they can't just say, we want to raise the income tax to 6.5% on people who make above whatever. As soon as you start to put numbers on it, that's how it dies. So even though it appears at first like this is sort of put together by a few random community groups and they're just you know pulling, the, they've got a can out and they're collecting quarters to make this thing happen, it's actually very sophisticated. It's a, in the ways that you just talked about, they, they look ahead and say, we don't want the legislature to outdo us later by reducing any tax to make up for this frankly, because they knew not to put actual numbers on the percentages that should go in. They'll let the legislature will figure that out later. And worse yet, if they don't do it, the governor can just do it by fiat in an executive order. Right, right. And and, and for those of you who haven't read it yet, it doesn't, as John said, it doesn't state a specific percentage of what uh, certain tax brackets would make uh, at an income tax. It simply says that Every year from 2021 to 2025, you have to be bringing in an additional $1.5 billion for schools um, compared to what you had in, uh, in the 2020 and 2021 fiscal right. year. So it, it's basically creating this $1.5 billion revenue for schools, which everybody loves more money for schools. But they're not telling you that pretty much everybody's taxes are, are likely to go up um, and that the legislature, your elected representatives, are unable to make tax, cut, tax cuts for five years or any changes to this new system for five years as well. Um, again, I think we can have the discussion in the legislature, but putting tax policy, much like people who tried to put energy policy in the Constitution, I, I have a hard time thinking the public's going to get behind this. Right, I do too, but we do have to keep an eye on it because, like I said, it is actually pretty sophisticated in the way that they are Absolutely. seeking to set it up. So you only consider the vague concept of shouldn't people have more, just do what's fair. I mean, that's why they call it the fair tax, right? You're like, oh, yeah, that's not such a bad idea, is it? Until you find out you might be considered one of the rich people in it. And why is it that they don't list what the percentages of the tax increases should be? And this idea that the governor, any governor, I'm not picking on Governor Whitmer, any governor that would be governor while this happens should be able to just decide on their own that I'm going to raise taxes today and I don't even need a vote of the legislature that runs counter to almost everything that we do in American government. Right. Well, um, at ABC, we believe in fairness, which uh, is encapsulated by the free enterprise principles that built this country fair and open competition, doing a hard day's work, um, quality, 
safe work that uh, make sure our and our, make sure our members get home every night uh, to their families. But that's the kind of fairness we're on board with, John. Maybe maybe not this other definition of of what other people think are. You fair. might need to sit down with these folks and you talk know, to them. maybe maybe it's just reaching out and and, and sharing those ideas. Who knows? But uh, we're we're at the end of our time here today. Uh, really appreciate John Selleck, uh, President and CEO of Harbor Strategic, for joining us in studio today. Uh, that's going to wrap it up here on the ABC of Michigan podcast. Now called Merit Shop Pod. I am Jeff Wiggins, your host, State Director of ABC of Michigan. Be well, my friends.